of the coronavirus pandemic with two whole people who are so far infected in Oklahoma. So it'll get here, but it's not here yet. So congratulations on coming out. Um, let's, uh, we're going to do something a little different tonight. For this night and the next four meetings, um, we're each going to cover, we're going to cover two topics on each evening. Tonight we're going to co cover the topic of, um, uh, Tim's going to cover the topic of why are there hypocrites in the church if it's true, and I'm going to cover the topic of whether, why um, is Christianity just some psychological crutch, or is there more to it than that? And so uh, a little bit different, as always, if you have questions, text those in, and then the last 10 or 15 minutes, we will um, answer those questions, and the number to text them is on your uh, outline. Uh, let's open tonight with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you that we can study your word. We thank you that there are good answers to reasonable questions, that we don't have blind faith, but we have faith based on solid evidence that we can give others an answer when they ask about the hope that is in us. And we pray, Father, that tonight you will guide and direct us, that our words and our actions and our thoughts will be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so here's the first subject. Isn't Christianity just a psychological refuge for those who need it? Now, um, we're kind of following some of the chapters in this book. I'm glad you asked. And one of the features they have in this book is every time there's one of these questions, they will um, give alternative ways to answer it, you, or th that you might hear the question asked. You won't always hear the question asked, isn't Christianity just a psychological crutch? There are other ways you might hear it asked, like some of these. Isn't religion just a crutch for emotionally weak people? Or don't people just create God to cope with an uncertain future? Um, why should it matter what you believe, as long as you have a sincere faith? I'm sure some of you have heard a question similar to that. Um, there's this idea that if you were raised to believe in God, you can never really deny that. That what you grew up being taught is what you hold on to for the rest of your life. Um, the question could be, um, what if I don't need religion? Or in this world where uh, we live in what's called a postmodern society, we'll talk about that a little bit more, you might hear the question asked like this, Christianity may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Now, all these questions have a common theme, even though they're slightly different. And that theme is that Christianity is simply a psychological invention of humans. Um, that there's no really objective idea or objective beliefs when it comes to Christianity or any religion. That everything is just subjective. Um, and some people have this subjective psychological need to have God in their life, and some people don't. And therefore, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. What works for you is good, um, but it's not necessarily true. And you see this in some quotes from famous people. Sigmund Freud wrote, wrote, to allay our fear of nature, we gave natural forces human-like personalities that, that we could appease them for our protection and prosperity. What began in mythology uh, culminated in the ultimate crutch, God. In other words, there's no reality behind God. This is just something that humans invented. And it was a crutch because we had these um, things we didn't understand in nature. And then he goes on to say, as the treasures of knowledge become more accessible, 
the more widespread is the falling away from religious belief. The more we know, the less we need God. Because there's no objective ideas to God. It's all a subjective um, thought. Uh, Steven Pinker, who's a professor of psychology at MIT, says religion is a desperate measure that people resort to when the stakes are high and they've exhausted the usual techniques for the causation of success. In other words, when you really got problems and you've tried everything that you can try, you turn to God because there's no other alternative. Not because there's any reality to God. Not because there's any objective um, evidence or truth behind it. Um, in fact, uh, even that word crutch, Christianity or religion is just a crutch, it sounds like some clumsy device. The book... Um, uh, I'm glad you asked, says this, a crutch is a clumsy device to help a person lurch through life, right? You get a crutch when you've broken your leg, and you hope that one day you can throw those away and walk without the crutch, because the crutches are not the best way to walk. And so the question we're going to look at is this idea of subjective versus objective. Is it universally true? Um, is Christianity universally true? Is it an objective belief, or is it just, you know, a psychological thing that some of us need to get through life because life is hard? Um, so let's talk about this idea of subjective versus objective beliefs. What are objective beliefs? Objective beliefs are statements that are true or false for everyone. Um, if I make the statement that the sun is about 93 million miles from the earth, that's a true statement, whether or not you believe it. Um, most objective beliefs can be tested somehow. Uh, not all of them. There are things that are true that are not testable, for instance, by the scientific method. Um, but that statement that the sun is 93 million miles um, from Earth can be tested. I might make the statement that carrots are the only nutritious food that there is. And now that's an objective statement. It's a false statement because carrots are not the only objective or the only um, nutritious food. But it certainly is an objective statement. It's something that's either true or false, and it's not just true for some people, it's true for everyone, or it's false for everyone. This is what an objective statement is. It's based on an object, the object of the sentence, um, that, for instance, the carrots are the only nutritious food. Um, a subjective belief is something that's really a personal belief. I love this quote from Sheldon Cooper on the Big Bang Theory. As a scientist, the Big Bang Theory is one of my favorite shows. And Sheldon Cooper says the best number is 73. Why? 73 is the 21st prime number. Its mirror, 37, is the 12th. And its mirror, 21, is the product of multiplying 7 and 3. And in binary, 73 is a palindrome. 101001, which backwards is 101001. What, you know, great logic. 73 is the best number. I know some people who've read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that think 42 is the best number, right? Um, this, in fact, is a subjective belief. It may be true for Sheldon Cooper, but it's certainly not true for everyone. Um, if I was to say that uh, chocolate mint ice cream is clearly the best ice cream, Right? That would be a statement that may be true for me or someone else, but it's certainly not an objective truth. It's subjective because it's an opinion. It's different for different people. And the question we want to ask is whether or not religion is objective or subjective. 
Which of these is it? Um, now, we live in, sometimes we live in what people call a postmodern world. What is a postmodern world? A postmodern world is an, a world in which ideas of universal truth, particularly having to do with morality and reason and rationality, um, are subjective. They're what everybody believes. It's what was the first question, or what one of the questions was. It, religion may be good for you, but it's not good for me. Um, and it's often claimed that we live in a postmodern world where everyone has their own truth, and no truth is better than somebody else's truth. But William Lane Craig, uh, a great Christian philosopher, really points out that we don't live in a postmodern world. We live in a postmodern world when it comes to morality and religion, but not when it comes to other things. He says this, the idea that we live in a postmodern culture is a myth. In fact, a postmodern culture is an impossibility. It would be utterly unlivable. People are not relativistic when it comes to matters of science, engineering, and technology. Rather, they are relativistic and pluralistic in matters of religion and ethics. But, of course, that's not postmodernism. That's modernism. In other words, people have always said that things like religion and morality are individual, but things like the facts of science are not. And he's pointing out that we could not even survive in a truly postmodern world where there is no objective truth, right? Whether or not the coronavirus is a problem would depend on who you are. One person might think it is, and one person might think it's not, and, you know, but if it really is an objective health problem, then we don't live in a postmodern world. Not when it comes to at least science or medicine or engineering or things like that. And so this idea that everybody has their own truth is not really postmodern, um, or that is postmodern, but we only apply it to things like morality and religion. In reality, that's what was always applied to when it came to uh, even the modern idea. People have always asked whether these ideas of morality and religion are subjective truths or are they objective truths. Um, so that's what we're going to talk a little bit more about. Is belief in the claims of Christ purely subjective or is such a belief based on objective truth? Now, Christians claim that everything we believe is based on objective, real events. Jesus either did or did not rise from the dead. Jesus either is or is not the only way to have a relationship with God. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's either true or it's false. These are objective claims. And Christianity has always been based not on subjective claims, not on I think this and therefore it's the best. I think this is my opinion and therefore it's right. It's always been based on objective claims, things that are either true or they are not true. And so, at least when it comes to Christianity, it is, it is an objective religion. It's, if it's true, it's true for everyone. If Jesus rose from the dead, it's a historical event. It's true for everyone. If he's the only way to the Father, it's true for everyone. These are the claims of Christianity, objective claims. Now, they're either true or they're false. They may be false, but it's not a subjective belief. It's, it's objective claims and objective beliefs. Now, why does this matter that we address this objection? One of the reasons I think it matters is because it's probably the most prevalent objection you will run into. 
In this pluralistic society we live in, where no one wants to offend every, anyone, unless you're maybe an adamant, um, militant atheist, you'll basically say, well, what's good for you is fine, and what works for me is fine too. You know, if you want to believe that mythology, that's great. Go ahead and do it. And so the way people get around this um, cutting-edge objective uh, claims of Jesus is just say, everything's subjective. It's okay for you. It's one of the most uh, prevalent ideas in um, our society today. Now, there is a subjective aspect to Christianity. We've all had our own experience. We've all had, if you're a Christian, you've had a subjective um, experience with Christ. You have things that are based on your personal belief. But that's true of everything. My marriage has an objective aspect to it. I have a marriage certificate. You know, it says I'm really married. My wife and I have a joint bank account. The bank thinks we're actually married. We file, you know, taxes together. But there's a subjective aspect to it as well. There's a relational aspect that you can't experience and only I can. And I can share that with you as part of the big reality of why I think my marriage is a real living thing. It's an objective truth. Um, we can always test subjective claims that, um, or we can, yeah, we can test subjective claims that have an objective part to them by asking whether the objective part is true or not. The subjective claim is that I have a relationship with Jesus. You can't have a relationship with someone is, who's dead. The objective part of that is Jesus rose from the dead. That's a claim that can be um, tested. And in fact, every belief, since subjective claims are beliefs, every belief is in some sense a subjective claim. I could say, um, I believe that George Washington is the first president of the United States. Because it's what I believe, it's in some sense subjective, but I'm appealing to an objective fact. So there, subjective isn't bad, is my point. Um, it, it's important, but um, Christianity isn't simply subjective. If it was, then it wouldn't make the kind of objective claims um, that it does. Now, let's go back to the original question, the question of, is Christianity just a crutch? And I want to ask the question, can religious belief be a crutch or act as a psychological crutch? And the answer is, of course it can. I can appeal to anything that helps me feel better as a psychological crutch. In fact, any belief system can be a crutch, whether it's true or false. Um, atheists have been quick to point out, in many cases, that their atheism is actually a crutch. It's a psychological refuge to go to a place where they feel more comfortable. Um, Aldous Huxley, a famous atheist, said this about his belief. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and, catch this, liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. What he's saying is my atheism is a crutch. I believe it because it gets me where I want to be. By believing in atheism and the meaninglessness of not life, I have no moral boundaries. I can do whatever I want. And because of that, um, of course, no doubt, this is an instrument of liberation. He doesn't appeal to whether it's true or not. He appeals to how it 
affects him, and it affects him in a way that he desires. So his atheism is truly a crutch. Um, Paul Witz writes this, because of my social needs to assimilate, because of my professional needs to be accepted as part of the academic psychology, and because of my personal needs, again, for a convenient lifestyle, for all these needs, atheism was simply the best policy. Looking back on these motives, I can honestly say that a return to atheism has all the appeal of a return to adolescence. He agrees that his appeal to atheism was based on these selfish motives, not on whether or not it was true. It was based on the fact that it did for him what he wanted it to do. And so therefore, anything can be a crutch. The question isn't, is this a crutch? The question is, is this true? That's the objective question. And that's the question when someone brings this up, we have to bring back when it comes to Christianity. Are the claims of Jesus true? Is he the only way to God? Did he rise from the dead? You know, is he God in flesh as we claim? Those are all objective claims that are either true or they're not. Um, I should point out, too, um, that just because something gives you comfort doesn't mean it's true. There are many belief systems that give people comfort. Every other religion in the world, um, and they all can't be true because they contradict each other. If the God of Islam is true, we talked about this the uh, third week, then the God of Christianity is not. If pantheism is true, then Christianity is not because they contradict each other. But all these other religious systems bring a, a sense of comfort to the people who hold them. And so it's true that a belief can bring you comfort, even if it's false. Um, but a belief can give you comfort if it's true. A child might have comfort with the fact that their parent is in the other room protecting them during the lightning storm, and they're going to be okay. That would be a true statement or a true idea that brings you comfort. Um, I might believe that some great benefactor is going to give me $10 million, and that's going to give me comfort. But that's a false belief. So false beliefs could give you comfort as well. And so just because you have a belief that gives you comfort doesn't mean it's true. But the flip side is, is also true. If something is true, it should work for you. It should give you comfort. Just because it works for you doesn't mean it's true. But if it's true, it should work. And again, for those of you who are Christians in the room, you have a story of how Christianity works in your life. It does bring you comfort. It does bring you peace. Does that mean it's true? No, not necessarily, but the flip side is correct. If it's true, it should work. And we could, many of us, attest to how Christianity works. Now, there are a lot of claims that people will bring up. Um, let's see. Yeah, so I, sorry, this was the last point C, which is what I was just talking about. Just because a belief happens to give you comfort or to work for you doesn't make it true. But if it's true, it should bring you comfort or work for you. Now, there, there are claims that people make as to why people remain um, wedded to the idea of Christianity, even though it's subjective, even though it's not true. And these are the accusations that are made against it. So I want to go through some of these. One accusation is that Christians believe because they were brought up that way, because they were conditioned that way. Um, well, this is really a false um, accusation. Why? First of all, I know many people who were not brought up as Christians and have become Christians. 
You don't have to be brought up in a belief system to believe it. But the other thing is there are many other things that I was taught or was told while I was being raised. Um, we used to have Santa uh, come to our house, and I would even get gifts at Christmas from Santa Claus. Um, well, I don't want to you know, burst anybody's bubble, but I no longer believe in Santa Claus. Just because I was taught something doesn't mean I hold on to it. I was also taught not to touch a red-hot stove. That's something I still attempt not to do, right? Because there are certain things I was taught that I know are not true, and there are other things I'm taught as an adult that I know are true. It's not what I was taught that determines what I believe is true. Um, it's what the evidence points to. So it's really false to say, well, you only believe that because that's what you were taught. That's what you were preconditioned for. Another claim that's sometimes made is, well, what really matters is how sincere you are. Christians believe because they have these strong emotions and they are sincerely believe something. But again, as I said before, sincerely believing something doesn't make it true. Make it true. Experience doesn't determine whether something is true or not. Um, if, I, if I believe that I can fly because maybe one day a gust of wind pushed me along, that doesn't make me, you know, it true. I can have sincere beliefs that are not true. I can have sincere beliefs that gravity doesn't hold for me. And I could jump off the roof of a building and gravity will hold for me. Because simply because you believe something strong enough, because you have strong emotions, again, doesn't determine whether or not it's true. Um, if you have a bacterial infection and you sincerely believe that it's just going to go away on its own, well, it might or it might not. It might get worse. Um, your sincerity doesn't matter in objective beliefs. Uh, another accusation is that um, Christians believe because it works for them. They've had a positive experience. And again, just because you've had a positive experience doesn't mean it's necessarily true or false. How many of you have had negative experiences with God? Right? That God didn't do what you wanted. So would you quit believing? Well, no, not if it's true. It's not just because you have an experience that you believe it, whether it's positive or negative. It's because it's based on evidence that's true. And so we don't believe it just because it works for them. Um, you know, atheism might work for somebody, Islam might work for somebody, but those are then, those aren't the proof of whether or not it's true. Another claim that is made is that um, Christians just have this felt need in their life. In fact, if somebody says, well, that's good for you, you have that need, it, it satisfies you, it makes you feel good, that's great, but I don't have that need. Well, there's a problem with that. And the problem is, you may not know that you have a certain need. Right? You can be sick with cancer and not know it. My brother died of pancreatic cancer, and one of the worst aspects of pancreatic cancer is that it, by the time you know it, because you feel something, it's basically ravaged your body. So it's not necessarily, the truth is not necessarily how you feel about something. There's a difference between a felt need and a real need. Um, you can have a tumor and have a real need and not feel like you need anything because you feel fine until it progresses too far to do anything about it. 
Christ claims that everyone needs a relationship with God. They need a Savior that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not everyone has that felt need. Not everyone feels like they violated the commands of a holy God. But the truth is not whether you feel like it or not. The truth is, is it, the question is, is it true? Is there an objective evidence that that's true? And so ultimately, all of these accusations fall short of showing that the issue is how Christians feel, what they think. The real issue is whether or not the claims of Christ are true. And how do you test claims? Well, any truth claim can be tested somehow. Um, some things um, are easier to show than others. It's easier to show that the sun is 93 million miles away than to show some other claims. But there are tools we use um, to actually test things. Um, we can use historical claims. There's ways to check. Uh, Tim talked about it in week four, about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. There are things you can do as a historian to check that. There are legal ways to, um, to test truth claims. There are scientific ways to test truth claims. Not every truth claim can be tested scientifically. Certainly historical ones can't. Was George Washington the first president of the United States? You can't test that in a lab. You have to test it using what's called historical legal methods. But the real um, bottom line of any objective claim is, is it true? What's the evidence for it? Um, is there enough evidence to support that objective claim? The claims of Jesus can be tested then to see if they are valid. Do humans need a savior or don't they? Are all humans sinful or not? Um, how you feel about it is irrelevant. I have a friend whose job is basically sharing Christ with people. He says it's easy to get people saved. It's hard to get them lost. In other words, it's hard to let, help people understand that they have a problem. That there is a um, disconnect between God and them because of their sin. Because most people don't necessarily have that felt need. There are those who do. And those who do, it's easy to show them how Christ can satisfy that need. Um, but we don't always have the same felt needs. Um, but any belief is only as valid as the objects which it's placed. The book is an illustration of a frozen, a frozen lake. And in the middle of January, it's frozen, and two friends walk up to the lake, and they say, let's walk across it. And one friend says, no, I can't walk across it. Um, I'll fall in. And the other friend says, no, it's January. It's frozen solid. We can walk across it. And they walk across it. And then they come to the same lake in late spring when there's a thin layer of ice. And one friend says, oh, we walked across in January. Let's go do it again. And the other guy says, no, you can't do it now. The ice is too thin. And the point of the story is it doesn't matter how strong their belief is. What matters is the thickness of the ice. The objective fact of whether their belief is true or not. You can have a strong belief, but the real important point is how valid is the object in which you place your belief. Is Jesus satisfactory to forgive us for our sins? Can he do that? Can he bring us in a relationship with Christ? Jesus said, as I've claimed before, as I quoted before, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that's either a true or a false statement. How can that statement be verified? 
Well, the thing we keep coming back to, because it's the core of Christianity, is the resurrection of Jesus. If it's not a historical fact, we should all go home and quarantine ourselves, right? We shouldn't be here. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then we should be pitied. We're fools. But if it is a historical fact, if it really did happen, if there's objective evidence, then everything else Jesus said is true because he validated those claims. The claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life becomes true. I don't know of any other religion that's founded on a similar objective evidence. It's been claimed that you can take, you know, Muhammad out of Islam and it would remain a religion. You can take almost anything out of any other religion and it would remain as a, as a worldview, as a viable um, belief system. But Christianity's not that way. If you take the resurrection out of Christianity, you have an, a non-viable system. Let me just, in closing, talk about the role of subjectivity. As I said before, particularly in our world where stories matter, your story of faith in Christ might be the most powerful thing you can share with someone else, more so than just the objective facts. But what has Christ done in your life? I, I learned this very um, vividly when I was in graduate school. I had a friend named Jeff, and Jeff was a non-believer. And Jeff and I would often talk about Christianity and why I was a Christian, and the objective claims of Jesus. And Jeff listened, he asked questions, but, um, but nothing ever came of it. And then, um, through a series of circumstances, we had an opportunity for a, um, another friend to move into the apartment we lived in. And this other friend's name was Scott, and Scott was a Christian. And Scott would get up every morning at 6 a.m. and have a time in the Bible with God, and he'd open up his hymn book, and he sang at the top of his lungs hymns at 6 a.m. in the morning. Fortunately, he had a pretty good voice. And so Jeff and I would listen to Scott singing hymns week after week. Well, through a, bu a bunch of circumstances, Jeff moved to another town, and after a while, he became a Christian. And he came back to me, and we were talking, and he said something to me that was really convicting. He said, Mike, in all of our relationship, you taught me a lot about what it meant to be a Christian. But Scott showed me what it meant to love God. And I realized that I never told Jeff, like, my personal story about why I love God. Well, I'm thick-headed, but I'm not that thick-headed. So not some about a year later, I had an office mate named Rich. And Rich and I started talking about Christianity. And one day I said, hey, Rich, can I tell you some personal stuff about God? And I shared with Rich how much I loved God and what God has done for me, and the intimate, subjective parts of the personal relationship that I had. And I said, yes, there are objective reasons to believe in Christianity, but there's this dynamic, wonderful, loving relationship. The next day, Rich came to me and he said, I've become a Christian. And it just shows the power of your story. The objective facts are great. We believe in Christianity because Christ rose from the dead, but it's more than that. My marriage with Julie is more than a piece of paper. It's more than a legal document. It's a dynamic relationship. And that relationship, that personal story, is a powerful way to share uh, the truth of Christianity with others. Uh, Tim, come on up. He mean all week, all right?
Hey, also, um, questions. We need questions. Send them in. We'll get to them at the end. So uh, questions for Mike and then questions for Tim at the end. So go ahead and text those in to me. I got hung up on the, uh, I don't know how, the microphone cord got hung up in my chair. Thank you for rescuing me so I could get up here and do this. Um, has, did the drummer do something wrong? He's like caged. By the way, that looks exactly like the top of my coffee pot at home. Does yours look like that? You just drop a giant filter in there and you can make yourself some coffee. Okay. Um, no extra charge for that fabulous joke. Um, again, thank you for being here. And, and it's, just, it's just so great to um, be able to have these conversations with everybody. And one of the topics that comes up and that, that really, really is difficult for people to deal with, and I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this yourself, but um, the concept of hypocrisy that exists within the Christian church. And this is a tough topic. And this is what I kind of call a shutdown topic for a lot of people. Because if you have someone that recognizes a problem with you and your walk with Christ, or collectively as an institution looks at the church and says, these people, I, I don't want to be like these people at all. They will shut down. And I don't know if any of y'all have ever experienced that before. Now, sometimes, admittedly, it's an excuse. There's people that are intimidated by Christianity. They're intimidated by the church. They're intimidated by God. And so they, you will use that as an excuse just to say, look, I'm not interested in that. And if you ask them why, they'll tell you that this may be the reason why. You'll hear uh, all kinds of comments. You might hear someone say a lot of people, I know a lot of people that are not Christians that act far more Christian than a Christian acts or the Christians that I know. Um, one of the things that really gets to me is if you hear people say, well, yeah, that guy, he's, he doesn't do some of this stuff. He's a Christian, but he's not one of those. He's one of those that really lives it. Or you'll hear somebody say, if that person represents what it means to be a Christian, then count me out. I don't even want any part of it. I had a long conversation with someone that I was close to for a while about this, and his whole hang-up was, was on that topic right there. Because he knew one person that didn't live their faith out the way he thought that they should, and he said, I don't want any part of that. And one day when I was feeling really bold, and it took, and, and I, I say this cautiously to you because it, it took a long time. You have to have a pretty good relationship with someone if you're going to ask a question that th that's this direct. But I asked him, so let's say that Christianity is true. The story of the Bible is true. And your fate is either separation from God for eternity or spending eternity with him. You're going to risk that because of some guy that you didn't think lived up to the standard? And he said, yes. <laughs> I said, okay, fine. We'll just go on down the road then. Um, but it, it is something that, that, that's, that we have to be compassionate about. Um, we talked a little bit about this. And we talked about suffering. But the compassion aspect comes into it in that in a lot of cases, people have been severely hurt by someone because of this hypocrisy. You know, you, and it's ironic because when we talk about this and we define what this really is, hypocrisy is when we wear a mask or we put on this nice exterior when the inside doesn't look so good. Well, there are some people that won't come to know Christ because their inside is hurting. 
but it, it's a hard shell on the outside, and they don't want to say what really happened to them. They may not give you all that information, but it's something that has really bothered them a lot, enough to stay out of the faith altogether. So let's define what this is, because a lot of times there's popular narrative out there, and there's people that are talking about what it is, what hypocrisy is, what it means to be a hypocrite. Let's define it. Um, by definition, a hypocrite is a fraud, a deceiver, pretender, charlatan, imposter, a Pharisee is actually part of that, uh, that actual definition. Um, a whited sepulcher, that's kind of, uh, that's, Jesus actually said that, a, a whitewashed tomb. And a phony, that's what a hypocrite is. Uh, someone that just pretends to be something that they're not. That they deliberately pretend to be something that they're not. Um, that photograph right there are some of the oldest ancient uh, theater masks that they actually, th those are actual archaeological discoveries that have been made, and that's what they did in the theater. In, in ancient Greek, in biblical times, in Rome, wherever, they, they didn't have makeup artists and, you know, CGI and all that stuff that we've got in the movies today. They wore masks, and that's how they got into character. They would literally, it's like the old theater mask that you'll see on the playbill, that they would hold that in front of their face, and that's how you knew who the character was, but you didn't know who it was behind them. And that is where the term actually came from. It's a theatrical term. And when Jesus coined it in Scripture, um, he was actually the, the first one. He may not have been the only one, but he was the first one to use that term with people. And that they knew exactly what he was talking about because it was about the mask that was in front of them. And this was the arena that they would wear their masks. You couldn't wear it out in public, so you wore it here at the theater. But... One of the things you would want to do with people in order to get, again, when we talk about all these things, it's so important to have common ground with them. And this is one of the areas that you do it. You agree on the definition of what a hypocrite is. So a hypocrite is not someone who admits that he is failing to live up to a standard, but it's someone that is pretending to be or to live up to a standard that they know they can't meet. It is pretending to be something that you're not. And I'm, I, 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 I was told, well, I wasn't told. I was suggested that I shouldn't show this. And it wasn't TBI, but it was somebody within my family, not my kids. So I won't tell you who it was. But um, there's, do I, 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 you guys ever watch Seinfeld? You guys watch that? Some of you guys might be too young. You don't know, like my kids don't know that. But Seinfeld was a wonderful show. I just love watching that show. And you remember Putty? Putty and Elaine? Okay, Putty at one point is dating Elaine, and they just have a very secular relationship going. And at one moment, Elaine finds out that he believes in God. And she's struggling with this because she doesn't understand religion at all, and she didn't know what to do. So she asked him, she said, do you believe in God? He says, yes, I do. And she says, well, is it a problem that I don't believe in God? And he said, it's not for me. And she said, well, why not? He goes, because I'm not the one going to hell. And so later, after they're spending some time together, he wakes up and he goes to, the, goes to her front door and said, hey, your newspaper guy forgot to deliver the newspaper today. And she says, well, sorry about that. And he said, well, go take your neighbors. And she says, if you want it, you go take it. And he goes, sorry, thou shalt not steal. And he looked at her. She goes, so it's okay for you and it's not okay for me? And he goes, ah, what difference does it make? You know where you're going. You know, and uh, it, it's a funny scene, you know, you laugh it off, 
But, you know, to some people, that's how they see us. That we're above such things. So we encourage people to do things wrong, but we don't want to participate in that. That's pretending to be something that you're not. Um, that is hypocrisy. And again, there's a very big difference in failing from time to time and falling into our sin and to our fleshly selves and making mistakes and making errors between that and just pretending to be something that we're not. And so we can agree and have common ground with people, say, okay, this is what a hypocrite is, this is what I believe it is, and we agree on those things. It's something that people can actually agree on. So the question becomes, does it stand to reason, just like people are trying to use this, again, against becoming a believer, does, it, does your life match your proclamations, number one? And if not, does the fact that we don't live up to perfection invalidate Christianity? Because that's what people will try to do from time to time. They want to invalidate Christianity. It's one of the, um, it's one of the soft spots, for lack of a better term, in, in religion as a whole. Because what people will try to do, and, and you'll see atheists do this a lot, that they will say, well, if Mormons believe Joseph Smith received the word from God and it came only to him, why should we believe that? If the Christians are saying that's not true, that equally invalidates Christianity. Or if, if Islam and the Muslim beliefs aren't true, then that should equally invalidate Christianity. They try to... They try to just lump everything together and, and form that argument against it. And so it is a soft spot, and they try to link it to it, but it's not necessarily the way it's done. And we have to be on guard. We have to be on guard for that. And the way we do that is we acknowledge that there is, in fact, a problem. We acknowledge that there is a problem within the church. Hypocrisy exists within the church. And again, if you, and if you are having a conversation with someone, it's very nice to be able to do this because you're finding a place where you can at least agree. It's, it's hard to fathom the idea that there are some Christians that have done nothing. They, they've recognized their need for a Savior. And they're doing all they can to improve most of the time. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be improving our lives and become more Christ-like every day. And we have to admit, though, that there has been a problem not only in present day and for individuals who are trying to live their lives, but in the history of the church, in the institutionalized church. People will be pretty quick to point it out to you. They're not going to have to look very far. And, uh, but there are things that have gone wrong. You know, one of the things that, that a lot of people reach out about are these historical atrocities that, took, took, um, uh, that, that happened in the name of God. Um, now, don't quote me on these numbers. There's no real count for these. You'll hear people give different arguments on all of it, but the Crusades, which took place, there was many, many Crusades. There was up to 1.7 million people killed. During the Spanish Inquisition, they say, I mean, you can see the numbers, anywhere from 30 to 300,000. We, we don't know what those numbers are. The Salem Witch Trials, that's a real popular one because, you know, it, it's, it was recent as far as atrocities go. And there was 19 people executed. And, you know, one of the things you don't ever want to do is, 
Um, you know, don't, bad things have happened everywhere, but don't get into a discussion about whose was worse. You know, <laughs> I mean, if there's been atrocities that were atheistic or influenced by atheistic thought, we don't want to have a conversation about, well, your atrocity was worse than our atrocity. Because, again, we are perceived, as Christians, sometimes people perceive us in a very legalistic manner. They look at us and they think, you're supposed to be perfect. You're always supposed to be nice. You're never supposed to drink, smoke, or swear. You don't do things like that. You're a Christian. And they're, they're thinking, the as much as they might get upset that we don't externalize things the way we should, they expect us to externalize our faith. And that's, that's why living beyond reproach is so important. And so I wonder how many times that um, we put on our masks, you know. Um, a lot of the atrocities that people look to are not really as bad um, in their minds as things that they see every day. People may not point out to you, well, the Crusades, I can't be a Christian because of the Crusades. They're not generally going to tell you because of the Spanish Inquisition, I won't come to know Christ. But they'll sure point out the evangelist who is financially corrupt. And they'll sure point out the affairs that they're having. They'll find those soft spots any way they can if they're looking to find them. Um, but we sometimes are guilty of wearing masks as well. And so I wonder where we wear ours. You know, are we the same people in church as we are during the week at work? Are we the same people when we're out with our friends? Um, are we the same people everywhere we go with every interaction? Are we the same people at Griffin Park coaching our kids? If you are, you're doing really well, by the way. Um, it never ceased to amaze me how my competitive juices could get going over a six-year-old soccer game like they did in other times of my life. Um, one of my heroes growing up was, a, was Roger Staubach, the Dallas Cowboy quarterback. Man, he, and, and to this day, he's still one of my favorites. I love him. And, I've, and um, I had a few friends that in the late 80s, he had retired probably close to a decade before that, and in the late 80s, they were in a pickup basketball game with Roger Staubach, which I thought was the coolest thing. And I said, well, how'd it go? And he goes, he was a jerk. And I went, what? And he said, man, he was just body slamming people. And let me tell you, Roger Staubach didn't quit competing. He did not stop competing. It was in the Super Bowl or he was in a pickup game in the gym. That's where his competitive juices were going. And I said, well, what did, was he, he was mean? He goes, oh, yeah, he was slamming us and yelling at us for not calling fouls. And then when he called a foul, we told him it was. I was like, you were arguing with Roger Staubach? That's the coolest thing, you know. But, you know, you can, you can lose your witness here or there. And you can find yourself not knowing what to do. One of the hardest experiences I had coaching soccer, again, this is, I'm in Griffin Park. You know, I mean, this isn't the World Cup. I'm like, there's little girls that are like, they want their snack. They don't care about all this. And, but there was a family member, of, and I coached the community Christian school girls, okay? And there was a family member of one of our players, and there was another girl from the other team, and the family member was really talking trash 
again, eight-year-olds. And it made her cry. And so she went to the other, and after the game was over with, you know, and it was kind of a, it was a rival game, you know, for eight-year-olds. And, and after the game, her parents came walking over, and they were making a beeline over to, and I did not know what was going on. I didn't know it was, I was coaching and all that. And one of the, one of the grandmothers of the girls came over, and she goes, you coach the community Christian school team, and that's not very Christian. And I said, I will find out what's going on. I, I'm really sorry. I don't know what ha- So we went back, and, and we kind of walked through this. But I'm telling you, in that moment, it was going to get ugly in a hurry. Again, over an 8-year-old soccer game. But it was about what we looked like and what their expectations were. And I'm going to tell you something that may sound boastful, and I really don't mean it to sound this way. I decided, okay, I'm writing a letter. So I wrote a letter to their coach, and it was, you know, diplomatic, and I just want you to know this is not what we represent. I honestly didn't know this was going on. I'm sorry, you know, I kind of wrote a letter of apology, and after that, everything changed. It was, hey, they're just kids, they're out playing hard, every, you know, the whole demeanor changed, and it was all because we were able to disarm the issue that was right in front of us. And it was, and it looked bad. And simply by admitting that it exists, we were able to get back on common ground again. And that meant so much um, to, to <laughs> so I, and then I had to go tell our parents, would you keep your kids quiet? You know, and, and believe me, I made mistakes out on the field too. There was a few times I, I was, it was ugly. But we have to admit who we are, okay? We have to admit who we are. And, and, and try to live the lives that God calls us to live. Um, again, there have been other things. We don't want to compare our evils, but other atrocities. Um, you know, if you, if you look at uh, uh, up to 130 million people have been killed um, by atheistic influence. Uh, it's not something, hypocrisy is not something that is exclusive to Christianity. It's just not expected from us. Other people might say, that guy's just a jerk, too bad. But if you wear the identity of Christ across, you know, if you're wearing the T-shirt, if you're coming to church, we're being held to a higher standard. And um, that's not easy to live up to. Um, so the second thing that we want to do if we're talking about hypocrisy, after we define exactly what it is, we come to an agreement on that, we look at, uh, we try to correct the false assumptions about the Christian faith. One is that all sin is hypocrisy, and that is not true. Now, all hypocrisy is sin, but not all sin is hypocrisy, and what do I mean by that? I mean the difference between, as I said earlier, pretending to be something that you're not, which is certainly sinful, as opposed to falling short from time to time. Those are the two distinctions. And, you know, R.C. Sproul, once speaking about the church, said, As Christians, we belong to the only club in human history that the way you get in is by admitting your inadequacies. Think about that. Our whole world is performance-based. You want to get into a good college, you got to go get a good SAT score, right? You got to get good grades. If you want to achieve something, you have to prove yourself better than the other people around you. You have to work at it in that way. 
Um, Christianity is the opposite. We say, God, I am nothing. I am a filthy rag. And I need a Savior. So that's what we're about as Christians. Um, and so the question becomes usually how we handle those failures. And how we interact with people. And it's, it's hard sometimes to, if, within our own pride to feel like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to admit I'm wrong. I don't want to have to admit I made a mistake. But most people that I've spoken to about this will tell you that the gnawing away inside, if you don't deal with it up front and honest, if something is in your spirit and God is telling you, this isn't right, making it right as much as you possibly can is a far better way to approach it than just leaving it alone because it will not only fester with the person that you may feel like you've wronged, but it will fester with inside, with inside yourself as well. Um, but all that said, it is not true to say that all sin, all sin is hypocrisy. It's not. Um, second, profession does not equal possession. Uh, the old saying is that, you know, there's a lot of people that are, are identifying as Christians today that don't know the first thing about what it means to be a Christian. And that's sad but true. There are an awful lot of people that say, and we'll talk more about this when we get into some of the other topics later um, down the road, but uh, there's a lot of people that identify as a Christian that, that they really don't understand what it means. And I don't mean that judgmentally. I just mean the truth of it is they don't know what that relationship is. But they've got an identity in that. And they say, I claim to be a Christian because I believe in God. Okay, but how does that impact your life? C.S. Lewis, in the introduction to his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about that term, the term Christian, about how, and this was back in the 50s, um, that it lost its meaning. And he made the comparison to the word gentleman. And if you haven't read it, what, if, if I were to tell you or say, define what a gentleman is, what would be the answer? What's the response? I was talking to a high school group, and I asked that question. I said, what is a gentleman? One of the girls looked up. She goes, rare. <laughs> I said, yeah. A gentleman to most people is a polite man, maybe a chivalrous man, a good person, someone that acts nice. Well, Lewis said that's not it at all. A gentleman, by definition, was someone of nobility that was a landowner. He had a coat of arms and he owned land. There was no contradiction in saying that guy is a gentleman and a scumbag. Or a gentleman and he's a liar. That was okay because by definition that's what a gentleman was. And he felt like Christianity was losing, it was getting watered down the same way. I grew up in America. I live here. I'm a Christian. We go to church every once in a while. We go to church all the time. You know, whatever it is. But there's people identifying that don't have a depth of their relationship. So profession doesn't always equal possession. Um, in John 1, or 1 John 1, 8 and 10, I want to read this to you real quick. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Um, we can claim it, but we have to live it. And we have to understand it, even if we're identifying that way. Um, thirdly, um, Christians are not perfect and they don't claim to be. We should look at progress, which comes from the inside out. Our perfection in God's eyes comes only from something that was done for us, not based on anything that we have done. Um, if you were to walk up upon someone that might appear to be overweight, you don't know their story. You don't know what's happened with them. And you might look at them and inside yourself think, wow, they, are really, they really don't look too good. What you may not know is that person might have weighed 450 pounds and they've lost 200 pounds now and their progress has been amazing, right? We don't know what that story is. And so in our own walk with Christ, our progression, trying to become more Christ-like is what we would have to focus on. I mean, imagine if you were, I don't know how many of y'all have ever gone on a mission trip to a, a foreign country or something, um, but if you have, one of the things that I'm sure we don't do is go into those countries and start talking about the behavior of the people that are there. Generally, what we do is try to tell them about the person of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, and what he meant to me. We're telling him about the person. Mike just said he, he, he claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. People don't make those claims. He did. Let me tell you about him. And the fact that I know him, and since I've known him, I've never recovered from that experience. We don't talk about their behavior as much as we just point them to, the, to him, and that's what we should be doing. Um, not judging people, but you know, just looking at their behavior. Um, not, or not looking at their behavior. Um, sometimes it helps if we can, can define a little bit, even within the church, what we do, what we know, and what we don't know. Um, there's, there's two different things at play. There's legalism, and, and this, you'll see, I've kind of used this. This is a Tim Keller thing. He says religion versus Christianity, and he always separates Christianity from every other form of faith. Um, religion says, if I do good, God will love me. Christianity says, God loves me, so I desire to do good. It's the difference between living outside in or inside out. It's a legalistic approach versus being obedient. There's a distinct difference between legalism and obedience. Um, the opposite of legalism is actually something called antinomianism. Legalism says adherence to the law is more important, it's, it's above the, the gospel, and that's how we earn God's favor. Our behavior is everything. That is not true. Um, antinomianism is equally not true because it says my faith makes me secure and my behavior doesn't matter. That my behavior means nothing and I'm saved so I don't have to worry about how I act because God loves me more than I sin. So when we look at those terms, understand that there's, people don't understand those meanings many times and sometimes it's helpful if we can help them understand that. Um, what's most important though is to point to what Jesus said about it. Um, and this is what he said. This is in, uh, in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Uh, you are like the whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Um, those are Jesus' words. The strongest words he had for anyone were those people, the religious leaders of the day, that were making claims that they were not living up to, and he could discern their heart, and he knew what was on the inside. And it was consistent throughout Scripture. It's not only in the, um, uh, the Old Testament, but it's also in the New Testament. I mean, not in the New Testament, it's also in the Old Testament. Um, the Pharisees lived externally. Everything was about how things looked. That's why they used to make all the, I mean, they were given the law, and they made over 600 of their own. There used to be a group of Pharisees that were called the blind and bloodied Pharisees. And because they made up a law, and on that, in that law, at one point, they felt like they couldn't look at a woman on the Sabbath. Couldn't even look at her. So if they were walking down the street, if they saw a woman, they would close their eyes, and they were banging into stuff. This is a true story. And they, but to them, that was a badge of honor because they had these bruises and cuts, and they were following the law. So it was all externalized. Um, but again, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets said the same thing. Um, if they saw a, a, a lack, if they thought orthodoxy was more important than, than being um, uh, Inner, without an inner quality to it. The prophet said, Isaiah, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Um, in Proverbs 26, 23, like a coating of silver dross on an earthenware and fervent lips with an evil heart, enemies disguise themselves with their lips, but in their hearts they harbor deceit. Though their speech is charming, though their speech is charming, they do not, do not believe them. For seven abominations fill their hearts. Their malice may be concealed by deception, but their wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Um, the Bible is consistently clear. This has been a problem since we've had God interacting with humanity. Since the fall of man. But the question, again, is does it invalidate Christianity? And the answer to that is no. It doesn't invalidate Christianity. Um, the question, like Mike just talked about, is Jesus who he claimed to be? One of the things that, uh, and I'm going to wrap it up real quick here, we've got to get, but um, you would never want to blame the founder of something for the action of the followers. When I say that, I would just ask you to attend an elementary school music recital. You ever been to one of those? They're playing Mozart? Are they really playing Mozart? Does it sound like Mozart? No, it, it, usually, <laughs> it usually doesn't, but we don't look back and go, man, Mozart stinks. You know, 
we grab our kids and we go, hey, keep it up, buddy. You were awesome out there. You know, we just tell them how good they did. Um, the truth of it is sometimes we're told to look more like Jesus. But our theories and our realities look a little different. The theory is to look like Jesus here, and sometimes we look like that. We're not, we're not always, well, we're never going to live up to it. And every time we fail is another way that we can let people know, I fail. Here's our common ground. I fail every day. And because I did, and I'm saying is if you're speaking to someone about this, I fail every day. That's why I have such a need for a Savior. And that's why I'm so grateful for what he did for me. Um, because why, if you have something that with someone that's a non-believer that you can agree on, why let that keep you apart? And, you, and everybody will generally agree hypocrisy in the church is a problem. And so as we, uh, before we take questions, just remember this. If you are having conversations with people about this and it comes up, be transparent um, with others about your own failures and your need for a Savior. Don't focus on their behavior or even your own. Um, and pray that God will restructure your heart um, and we can live beyond reproach. Sometimes we pray for things, but we don't always pray for God to change us from the inside. And if we want to try to eliminate the faults in our own lives, sometimes it's better to say, God, restructure my heart, restructure my mind, make me into who you want me to be. So um, with that, I guess we're ready to answer any questions. If we've got questions, Mike. All right, Mike, um, this first one's for you. It doesn't have to do with um, Christianity being a psychological crutch, um, but it, it has to do with dinosaurs. <laughs> All right. Okay, so um, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Uh, or can you explain the era of dinosaurs in relation to creation and history? All right, so now we're back to week one and two again. Yeah, that's fine. This was a question that we didn't have time for, so okay. we want to get this one in. Thanks. Um, so as we talked about with uh, Jeff when we talked about science and Christianity, there are a lot of different viewpoints that Christians have about the way in which God created and the time scale in which God created. My personal belief is that the Bible doesn't say anything about dinosaurs, that they in fact lived 65 million years ago, long before humans came on the earth. Um, there are people who believe that the earth is young, 6,000 years old, and humans and dinosaurs live together. But I don't think that view is supported by scripture either. So if you go to the Natural History Museum at OU, I believe that the dates given for when those creatures lived are correct, and that that actually fits well with what the Bible teaches. Okay, so I grew up watching The Land of the Lost. Yeah. So that's probably not, yeah. probably not valid, huh? Okay. Um, Jurassic Park, too. Jurassic right? Park, there right. Um, how do, either one of you could take this, how do you know the difference between experience and evidence? Well, I think dinosaurs were hypocrites, by the way. <laughs> um, experience and evidence. I'm trying to think the context of it. So it's partially what I talk that. about. I think experience is one kind of evidence. Your experience does matter. 
your experience is real. It's subjective evidence, but subjective evidence is valid evidence. Um, I think if it, you only have experience and there's no objective facts behind it, you know, you can question that. Um, but I would never say that, you know, experience isn't evidence, it's one kind of evidence. I think a strong case has to be built on subjective evidence. If it's real, it should work, as well as objective evidence, things that can be shown to be externally true apart from experience. Okay, uh, last question. How do we pray for people who have really been hurt by other people in the church, even in areas of abuse, especially if they are completely unrepentive to anything Christian? So how can we pray or what could we do? Well, uh, um, you would pray for them the way you would pray for everybody else. Um, I, I, I think that um, if people have been hurt from the church um, or, or from someone that, again, is identifying as a Christian, that person may be seeing them um, in, in a light that we don't see ourselves. They put you up here because this is what you're supposed to be. So praying for someone in that way is praying for their heart, praying for their mind, and praying, praying for people to come into their path that can move them and touch them. I think Mike said in the first week, the, the old adage that it takes 30 people to lead someone to Christ, 29 think they didn't do anything, and one thinks they did everything. It's, it's a process from time to time. And so I think praying for people is so important, and praying for people to come into their path that can make a difference in their lives as part of it as well. You know, I just add to that. Uh, go ahead. Well, Mike. I was going to go ahead. You're first, and then I'll add. You know, what Mike said earlier, though, is, is our love uh, to, to the people. Um, it's not always we can't have a chapter and verse, and maybe we don't even um, know all the words to pray. Keep praying, but also keep loving. Keep coming near to them. Um, and I often will pray, Lord, Lord, use me. If, I, if, if you want to use me, I want to be, be your man you know, but if you, if you want to use someone else, pray for the church at large. All over the country, there are believers in other circles, in other cities, and pray that the church, in fact, if you looked at the prayers of the, of the saints, it's, it's not pray for me, pray for me. It's pray for, pray for us as the gospel goes out. So there's much prayer of encouragement for the body of Christ that they would be activated. Uh, pray for the workers, you know, the fields are white for harvest, right? And, and, um, and so pray for the workers to share the gospel. So we can do that, that God, you, your church is around these people. Your love is around them. Bring love to them. Bring a sunset, a part of your creation, the gospel through other people. If you want to use me, I want to I be there. But if you want to use your church, I, I realize that your, your word goes out through them as well. So There are times I don't know how to pray for someone, and my prayer is simply, you know, God, you know their heart. You know what will touch their heart. Mm -hmm. You know, do that because I don't even know what will touch so-and-so's heart. And so I think that's another prayer. It's, you know, asking the Spirit to pray with groanings that we can't utter because I don't even know sometimes. Right. 
I, I find great encouragement too. And, and even we, we know that the, that the, the spirit prays for us, even utterances that when we can't get out the words, we don't know how to pray. Um, if you remember, um, Jesus, you know, when he was betrayed, you know, by, by Peter and, and he was the things that Peter, he said, you know, Satan, you know, when they came to get him, he's, he was telling them the story that they, you know, they're going to come and they're going to get me. And he said, no, you're not, they're not going to do that. You know, they can't take you away. There's a better plan. We're going to make you king. And, and that was his idea. I'm kind of paraphrasing the Brian Hayes version. That's very dangerous, by the way. Don't quote me on any of that. But it, um, what did Jesus say back to him? He said, he said, you know, Satan is wanting to sift you like wheat. But Jesus says, I've prayed for you. Does that not bring you comfort that even, even Jesus is praying on our behalf? He knows our longings for those in our family, those in our, that are close to us that may not know the Lord, those that we love. So Jesus is praying for us. The Spirit is praying for us. And, um, and so even when we don't have the words, it's not, it's not a magic formula, words of, of recite this prayer and it'll happen. Keep praying, be diligent in it. We're encouraged to do so. So thank you all. Uh, Tim, uh, Mike, thanks again. Great job tonight. We look forward to next week. What do we got next week? What's our next question? We're off. Our, yes, we're off next we're off week. Next week. That, is, that is true. So if you come back next week, uh, it's <laughs> The question break. is, why did you show up? Because nothing's right. going on. <laughs> that's, a, that's the question. But enjoy spring break, and then we'll be back. And uh, I don't have the questions in front of me for the, the following are, one. Are they there? They know. should be in our syllabus if anybody has that in front of them, which I don't. Is Christ the only way to God? Is there two questions we're tackling? Yes. So two great questions. Will God judge those who have never heard? How many have been asked that question before? Okay, it's a great question. Let's get some answers to it. So uh, let me send us out with a, with a blessing. God, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word, uh, for these guys who have come to us and shared uh, their hearts and, and shared reasonable answers to, to tough questions, uh, questions that um, some believers have, um, questions that, that certainly skeptics might have. Lord, use these reasonable answers uh, to help shape the lives, and it's your spirit that turns the sinner to himself. You're the one that opens the eyes. You're the one who brings in the harvest. But Lord, help us to turn the soil, to plant the seeds, to water to do whatever we can uh, to bring you glory, to make your story known, your gospel, your life-saving gospel to them. Mm -hmm. And Lord, bring in a harvest as we answer questions and help us to be faithful in it and help us to be correct and accurate and help us lead in love and guard us this week in our city, in our nation, in our country as uh, this great epidemic is, is uh, upon us and it's all around. We pray for all those uh, infected in the families and many in quarantine right now and in chaos. Lord, we know you're near to them in the midst of all of this. And Lord, we pray for the, our leaders um, of our country and our state and our city and our churches and all the organizations and businesses and uh, our in our city government to help them make the decisions that are good for us and wise. And we pray for your protection and help us to grow closer to you through this. Lord, we know you're near. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you all for coming. If we could, worship team is going to have practice soon so we could exit right over here. That would be fantastic. We'll see you in two weeks.